0: We are very honored to have Sarah Wenger-Schenk with us this morning uh, to give the sermon. Sarah has been serving as president of Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary uh, for the past seven years. Before then, she was a member of the faculty and administration of Eastern Mennonite Seminary in Virginia. And prior to that, she and her husband Gerald served as students and teachers in the former Yugoslavia. I was privileged to work with Sarah uh, a number of years ago as she co-led the group which was called together to discern further how the church might deal with the difficult and complicated legacy of John Howard Yoder. Sarah has also written extensively, and if you would like to follow her writing online, she writes an occasional blog called Practicing Reconciliation, And I have found her writings there to always be very wise, honest, and courageous. Sarah, we look forward to hearing from you this morning.
1: Thank you, Linda. It's wonderful to be with you. You all have uh, the privilege of being served by at least two pastors who are graduates of AMBS, Todd and Samantha, and there are a fair number of other AMBS graduates or alumni here in this congregation. Glenn and Annabelle are here, and Titus and Linda. I won't try to enumerate the others, but there's strong connections between AMBS and East Chestnut Street, so it's a wonderful privilege to be with you to worship. This morning, I will also say that I have strong family connections to Eastern, not to Eastern, to East Chestnut Street uh, Mennonite Church. Uh, This was the home church of my mother's family. Mother and dad, Chester and Sarah Jane Weaver Wanger are with us along with my brother Tom who was gracious enough to bring them this morning. Mother's parents, Lloyd and Sarah Oberholzer Weaver, worshipped in this congregation. And uh, my mother and father were married here in 1944. That would be 73 years ago. Right here. And uh, when... Uh, My colleague, Missy Kaufman-Schrock, Director of Development at AMBS, who's also with us this morning, asked Mother this morning, has anything changed? (laughs) Or what has not changed? I can't remember quite how she asked it, but Mother said, the benches are the same. I don't know for a fact that that's the way it is, but uh, they very well might be. The wedding service was a part of a regular Sunday morning worship service because you did not have a fancy, separated-off, ooh-la-la wedding (laughs) service. It was folded right into the Sunday morning worship time. So, for multiple reasons, very grateful to have this opportunity to gather with you, to worship with you this morning We joined in the call to worship from uh, Psalm 19, one of the lectionary scriptures for today. The Psalm given provides magnificent word pictures. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. <laughs> Nor are their words, their voice is not heard yet. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. Many of us have heard this magnificent psalm set to music in a piece by Haydn that I sang when I was at Lancaster Mennonite School many years ago, The Heavens Declare the Glory of God. It's a psalm that uh, Gerald and I, my husband and I, memorized together when we had occasion to make long trips through West Virginia. It seemed like a good psalm to accompany and help the miles go by. In it, we hear the spectacular beauty of a world created by God, but also a world-ordered world ordered By the perfect, enlightening, wise, and yes, sweet law of God. A law whose vision is for justice, rightly aligned relationships that revive the soul and rejoice the heart. This psalm forms the backdrop for our reflection this morning visions of which there are many throughout the scriptures of the spectacular glory of God evident in the created world and the sweetness and joy we experience in communities ordered by the law of God, where justice and peace and love prevail. And then the lectionary provides us with two vineyard scriptures. Wow, do I ever love a good vineyard? Grew up with wanger grapes, a couple generations of them. My father's vineyard just walked by it yesterday. A couple weeks ago, took our two grandsons to pick the sweet grapes of another Wanger vineyard in Virginia. Here we read a vineyard described by the poet prophet Isaiah and one from Jesus, told by Matthew one of Jesus' parables that picks up on the Isaiah reference to vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. In other words, he provided all the optimal conditions for growing wonderful grapes, and instead it yielded Wild grapes. A keen, profound disappointment. You can hear it in the scripture. And you can hear it in the response. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. Why? Because God expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness but heard a cry. Jesus draws on this vineyard image in his parable, describes the violent conflict that erupts when tenants take things into their own hands, killing not only the messengers of the landlord, but his son. And who will the vineyard be given to, Jesus asks? A people that produce the fruits of the kingdom, the deeds of justice and mercy. So we hear the theme again that resonated in the psalm, the beauty of this magnificent world, the pleasant planting of a vineyard, the vision for God A vision from God for well-ordered communities who devote themselves to deeds of justice and mercy. Well, where do we find ourselves in this story? Linda alluded to some of where we find ourselves. Weeks that only seem to intensify the distress that is out there in our world, and in many cases in our own communities and sometimes in our homes. Vision for a well-ordered world and the bloodshed and violence that mars its beauty, its sweetness, in the wake of bloody massacre in Las Vegas, and yet another hurricane devastating the Gulf Coast. Natural calamities that seem to be exacerbated by... Human greed, human irresponsibility, ugly public discourse, racialized violence, unprecedented immigration of desperate people. It just ratchets ratchet is, ratchet, that's a hard word this morning. (laughs) You know what I mean? It just keeps increasing, going up and up and up, the stress of it all. And then there is the tension in our own church playing into the polarization that is out there, getting captured in the intense over-againstness and othering of our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us, in the midst of all of this tension, this ugliness, Feel an increasing longing for beauty. Deep wellsprings of that which will renew the spirit. The beauty of nature. The beauty of scripture. Flourishing community life where justice and fairness is, is experienced by all. The beauty of Jesus Christ. Now let me just clarify something. When I talk about beauty, I'm not talking about superficial glamour or gloss. After all, I grew up on a steady diet of beauty is as beauty does, right, Mother? Mother? I'm talking about beauty that reveals God to us. Reveals God to us, especially in the midst of suffering. Right when we are most fearful. When violence is erupting. When we experience loss. It's then that beauty stuns us, takes our breath away, calls us back to what is true and good, calls us back to the beauty of holiness, the beauty of the love we see in Jesus Christ that is willing to suffer with, suffer for instead of inflicting suffering. Beauty, Dostoevsky said, will save the world. We could spend a long time unpacking that. One of the books I've reflected on a lot in the last year is called On Beauty and Being Just. Just. By Elaine Scarry. An experience of the beautiful is sacred, Scarry says. It is life-saving. At the moment one comes into the presence of something beautiful, she writes, it greets you, rather like the heavens telling the glory of God. That's my footnote based on our morning psalm. When you come into the presence of beauty, it greets you. There is a quickening, an adrenalizing, and there is a longing, a longing to be in league with what is true and beautiful, to align our lives with it. It is that longing which is the the source of conviction, she says. It is that longing to protect and defend the beautiful, whether it's in nature, whether it's in well-ordered communities and relationships, that longing to protect and defend the beautiful that compels us to repair injury and attend to problems of injustice. This longing to align our lives with what is good and true, which we recognize in what is beautiful. Let me illustrate. Let me illustrate from the story of Dorothy Day. Many of us would be familiar with her, in some respects, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. There's a new book out about her by her granddaughter called Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. I was so struck with the title because I had been inspired about Dorothy Day in this way before this book came out. I thought, oh, I must have aligned something right here in terms of how she found the source of what motivated her to care for the most impoverished persons, to create homes of hospitality and beauty for people who had none of the sort of the fellowship hospitality or safety. As a young adult, she joined the Socialist Party. She was drawn to the bohemian life of Greenwich Village. She saw religion as a crutch for those who were weak, wanted nothing to do with religion. It was Saw it just as an excuse to stay quiet and uninvolved. After a love relationship that resulted in a pregnancy, which she aborted, a marriage which failed, She began to live in a common-law marriage with a biologist who was an anarchist and also an atheist. Three years later, their daughter was born. This was in the 1940s. Daniel Berrigan, a colleague later, said about her, Why did this agnostic and anarchist, veteran of jails, marches, fasts for justice, soulmate of a man who was the very half of her being, Why did she renounce against all sound reason, her only love, cut her past, anger and bewilder her friends, to return to faith and begin this movement? Why? Well, here's why in Dorothy Day's own words. She writes, if I had written the greatest book, composed the greatest symphony, painted the most incredible painting, or carved the most exquisite figure— I could not have felt more the exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. To think that this thing of beauty, sighing gently in my arms, reaching her little mouth for my breast, clutching at me with her tiny beautiful hands, had come from my flesh, was my child? Such a great feeling of happiness and joy filled me that I was hungry for someone to thank to love, even to worship for so great a good that had been bestowed upon me. That that tiny child was not enough to contain my love, nor could the father, though my heart was warm with love for both. With the birth of her child, Dorothy made her way back to faith. She founded The Catholic Worker, a paper for some 53 years that was the voice of a movement that concentrated on the basics of the gospel. She helped to found more than 40 houses of hospitality and about a dozen farms, which became places the poor could call home. Illustration. An encounter with beauty, says Elaine Scarry, the author I referred to earlier, far from damaging our capacity to attend to problems of injustice, intensifies the conviction we feel to repair existing injuries. An experience of the beautiful seems to compel us to enter into its protection. So how does this relate to us in these unsettling, distressing times when we need in an intensified way to renew our sources of conviction, what it is that will propel us out into the ugliness, to counter with beauty and hope and healing? Where do we encounter beauty? Those wellsprings that give us courage to face into the ugliness. I want to suggest three places briefly. There are many. <laughs> three, which our psalm for the morning alludes to. An experience of the heavens. Nature, nature, all of nature as one of the books that reveals God's beauty. Infinite source of beauty. Such a striking bouquet. Someone will tell me what kinds of flowers these are. (laughs) They are an amazing call to worship if we see them and allow them to open our spirits to the creator whose imagination is beyond Imagination. (laughs) An experience of nature. The second, the law of God that we heard referred to in Psalm. Scriptures, another book of beauty, especially the beautiful story of Jesus. Oh, my, we've developed such an aversion to the scriptures because we've turned it into a clobber text. We've made it a battleground. It is a source of profound and deep beauty, and it is the reason I love working at AMBS, because it is our primary work to listen deeply to the scriptures, humbly, skillfully, faithfully. Wow, is it a gold mine. The Bible. And a third place in pleasant plantings of vineyards, meaning communities, kingdom communities, where deeds of justice and mercy are known and embodied. These three places, back to the natural world, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Mary Oliver, a poet, telling the glory of God, and good morning, she says, the multiplicity of forms. The hummingbird, the fox, the raven, the sparrowhawk, the otter, the dragonfly, the water lily, and on and on. It must be a great disappointment to God if we are not dazzled at least ten times a day. How many of us are dazzled at least ten times a day? I hope I see lots of hands in the air. <laughs> How does being dazzled by that beauty move us toward conviction, intensifying our desire to repair and restore? We are in the midst of the largest social movement in human history, writes Diana Butler Bass, a scholar of American religion and culture, with tens of millions of people involved in grassroots communities trying to address issues of climate change. It is an organic movement to restore grace, justice, and beauty to the world, says Bass. Secondly, to the scriptures again, and above all, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the gospel in North American Christianity has been domesticated, made to seem conventional, predictable, uninspiring, and dull. To a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by moral assertions, beauty, on the other hand, has a surprising allure. So says pastor and author Brian Zand. Christian faith that is deeply enchanted by Jesus Christ's beauty can present to a jaded world an aspect of, of the gospel that has been too rare. And everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. Jesus Christ who faced into the forces of chaos unleashed against him with nonviolent love, suffering love. Jesus who came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus who said in the parable read to us following that, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Paul picks up on this reference in Ephesians, talks about Jesus Christ as the cornerstone in the household of God, built together as a dwelling place, those who have found Jesus Christ to be our peace. Jesus Christ who broke down the dividing wall, the hostility between us, so he might create one new Humanity, a vineyard on a pleasant hill, a fertile hill where the fruits of justice and mercy abound. I'm guessing that many of us are here at East Chestnut Street this morning because we have had that quickening, adrenalizing encounter with beauty Over and over, we've become alert to it, to seeing it. We've chosen to be in league with what is true and beautiful to align our lives with it. We've had these encounters in nature, in scripture, in communities where justice and mercy prevail. Despite the headline-grabbing tragedies and divisions, we're here to cheer each other on. Amen? because at least some of us have seen beauty and can testify to how injury can be repaired and that the dividing wall of hostility can come down. Some of us have experienced the fruitfulness of a thriving vineyard, and we know the beauty of a just and mercy-filled community where Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I certainly have seen it, I've seen it in my own family over and over again. When terrible things were said, rupture was possible, and there was acknowledgement, tears, and forgiveness. We've experienced it ecumenically with Catholics and Mennonites washing each other's feet, Lutherans and Catholics, weeping and confessing how our histories have bedeviled us apologizing and moving forward together in new ways. We've experienced it at AMBS in many ways, in, the, in one, of the, one of the prominent ways which Linda referred to with our confession and apology for AMBS's complicity and John Howard Yoder's sexual exploitation and violence. <clears throat> we see it in the way the doctrine of discovery events Dramatic depictions call us to revisit our relationship with the land and the native peoples of this land. Many of us have seen the beauty of restoration and repair at the congregational conference and denominational levels and in those circles. Always partial, yes. Always imperfect, yes. But it does happen. And when it does, it moves us to the core, so much so that we want to align our lives with it. We want to align our lives with what is true and beautiful and enter into its protection. So with gratitude for the heavens that tell the glory of God, with gratitude for the law of God that teaches us to live well together, for the vineyard of the kingdom where the sweet fruits of justice and mercy prevail, and above all, with gratitude for the beauty of the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus the Christ, who has become the cornerstone of a new humanity, we give thanks. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord God our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen.